All right. Well, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but uh, I want to share with you a prayer of blessing that has been uttered for centuries by uh, Jewish men at the beginning of each day, and it goes something like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman or a Gentile or a slave. Now, you chuckle, uh, and obviously that, that prayer can be prayed in a couple of different ways, right? A man could get up in the morning, every morning, and pray that prayer in a judgmental, arrogant, misogynistic, racist way that looks down one's nose at those who are not as fortunate or even seen to be less worthy than the person praying. Or one could pray a prayer like this in a spirit of gratitude. In other words, like, thank you for placing me in circumstances that are not as difficult as the plight of those who don't have it as good as I do. And even as we read this story today of this woman who's had this uh, flow of blood for 12 years, us men can say, thank you, Lord, that you did not create me with a uterus. Thank you, Lord, for a relatively easy life. We, we pray this kind of prayer all the time, don't we? we? We gratefully recognize the unmerited favor and blessings that God pours out on us, the privileges that, that we have, like, like thanking God that you live where you do, or you were born into the family into which you were born, or that you have the money and the resources or the talents that you have. Don't we thank God that we live in America where we can worship freely, where we can meet here on a Sunday morning and worship Jesus Christ without fear of persecution or having the doors shut on us or the government arresting us and imprisoning us? We have a a semblance of freedom of religion and speech and prayer and public worship that others don't. It's, It's right to thank God for those privileges. Because we all could have been born in a lot of different places, right? In a lot of different times with a lot less privilege and opportunity than we have. So the question I have then, is it wrong to give thanks for what you have? Is it wrong to give thanks for who God has made you to be? And I would argue that it's, that it's not. And there's an implicit recognition that God has sovereignly created each one of us as who we are. God has created each one of us how we are, as men or women created in His image, as sons or daughters for Him to love. God has created men as men that He might have many sons. And God has created women as women that He might cherish and protect those He calls daughters and that they might turn around and call Him Daddy. And the story we're looking at today, the story we looked at last week as well that Mary Lou read for us this morning is is the story of God's special love for those he's created as daughters. We have the ruler's daughter in verse 18 who has died and the ruler desperate comes to Jesus and says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Come and save my daughter from death. 
And then we have this woman in verse 22 who is the focus of the message this morning. And Jesus turns to her and he says to her, Take heart, daughter. These are stories about God's love for his daughters. Last week we looked at a dead daughter, at a, at a resurrection story. And this week we look at the story of a suffering daughter. And this is really a, a salvation story. And you'll see uh, towards the end of the sermon how these two fit together. But here we have it in verse, verses 20 through 22. Just three short verses that Matthew gives us to convey this story. It says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. This is a woman who has suffered deeply and chronically for a long time, 12 years. We can't be sure exactly, but she had likely suffered from chronic uterine bleeding, a prolonged menstruation, if you will, for 12 years. And as much as she obviously longed for them, she didn't have any answers. She had no clear path to healing. The book of Mark tells us that she'd spent all of her, all of her life savings, all of her finances and resources on physicians. And sometimes, I don't know if you knew this, but physicians can't always help you. Sorry, Dr. Noor. As much as she longed to be healed, she hadn't been. And this woman's medical condition would have sapped her of energy, would have sapped her of vitality. It would have controlled her life. All of her energy and attention would have revolved around giving uh, attention to this disability that required constant physical maintenance. And if that weren't enough, her, her condition wasn't just physical, but it had social and, and religious effects as well because she would have been considered ceremonially unclean, ritually impure, constantly for 12 long years. You go back to the law, to the Torah, the instruction in the first five books of the Bible. Here's what the law had to say in the very center of it in Leviticus chapter 15. Verse 25, it says this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And if you continue to read on in Leviticus The passage goes on to explain that even the beds and the furniture upon which she sat would be considered unclean. If someone were to come and and sit on that furniture after her, they would become unclean. She was a fount of perpetual impurity. And and that would would have affected her social life. Her function in society would have been severely limited, even non-existent. This is a society, remember, that measured a woman's value and her ability to bear children. She would have have lacked just a, a basic objective social value. If she had been married, she was likely divorced by now. A man would have put her away. 
because of lack of intimacy and lack of being able to provide an heir. So in so many ways, she was an outcast, cut off from, from family, from husband, from children, and also from the worshiping community. And so this woman, she comes to Jesus, and, and perhaps for a while she had wanted to come to Jesus, but because of how she viewed herself, she knew herself to be unclean and impure, she, she likely didn't see herself as even worthy of coming to him, as, as worthy of his attention. She was certainly aware of the, of the danger of her uncleanness rubbing off on him if she were to touch him, a risk of contamination, of him, Perhaps she feared even being rejected by him as she had likely been rejected by so many others. But it seems that she saw something in Jesus, didn't she? She saw a man who had access to supernatural power. She saw a man with authority to heal. She saw a man who displayed compassion, who, who didn't seem to function like the religious elite function, but healed everyone regardless of their social status. In fact, this guy had just come out of the home of an infamous sinner with whom he was reclining at table and sharing a, a meal with. This was a man who cast out demons, who made people clean. Just minutes before, he had agreed to leave this meal to follow a ruler to his home to heal a dead little girl. So perhaps, even if he didn't stoop to her level or even acknowledge her, she could at least tap into his power. And at first glance, when we read how this account went and the the thoughts that were going through her mind, it, it would seem on first reading that this this woman's action and the way she was thinking through it was kind of superstitious, right? If I just touch his clothes, then I'll get the magical power from him and I'll be healed. And it seems almost almost magical, like she thinks there's a healing energy in his clothing. She came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. But I think there's something more than superstition Going on here. I think there's something much deeper going on. There's a there's actually a deep connection here to an Old Testament image, which which when we combine that with the way in which Jesus responds to this woman, it actually clarifies what was actually going on here in her heart and mind. Because Jesus speaks, this is the first time he speaks in this whole story. He doesn't talk to the ruler, he speaks to her, and then later on. Remember, he speaks to the flute players and the mourners and kicks them out of the house. We talked about that last week. Here he speaks to her. And his response is a recognition, an affirmation of her faith that that is actually displayed, I would say, in her kind of furtive action of, of touching his garment, coming secretly behind him and touching his garment. And he sees in that faith. If you look in verse 21, it says, that she touched the fringe, the fringe of his garment. And that was, a, that was actually a term that referred to a very specific piece of Jesus' clothing. And like any good Jew, Jesus would have, have dressed in, a, in some sort of outer garment, like a robe or something. And that robe would have had tassels on the hems or on the edges of the sleeves. And these tassels would have hung down from his sleeve and... Um, 
These were required by the law of Moses. And so we'll turn back to the Torah, back to the book of Numbers. And we see here in Numbers and later in Deuteronomy, this is what's said by Moses. He says, Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So, so these tassels on the corner of these garments were required by the law, and they were very likely the, the portion of Jesus' clothing that this woman was attempting to touch. Now get this. The Hebrew word for tassel in the Old Testament is also, interestingly, the same word, one of the words that is used for a wing, like a bird wing. Okay, And so you can imagine these robes, if you put your arms out, the robes would kind of hang down and they would resemble wings. Right, So this, this word could, could be fringe or tassel, and it could also mean wing. So the hems or fringes of garments resembled bird rings. And when the prophet Malachi rolls around hundreds of years after Moses and begins to convey messianic images of hope, we should understand him in connection, what, what he says, in connection with this tassel wing imagery. Here's what he says on behalf of Yahweh in in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. He says this, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. So you get this picture, this image of the sun rising. It says the sun rising with healing in its wings. So this prophesied son of righteousness that Malachi was, was thinking about and speaking about is a reference to the Messiah. So now we have Jesus, this messianic figure, this light of the world coming on the stage and bringing light to the land of Galilee of the Gentiles. He comes onto the scene teaching with authority, displaying miraculous works, throwing out demons, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, doing all these things in his healing and compassion, even coming and claiming to forgive sins. The observant and wise Jew will draw a straight line from Malachi chapter 4 to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And will say, in this man, in his wings, is healing. And what are his wings? The fringes of his garments. And I would argue that this is the very connection This woman was making in her mind that if Jesus truly is the Messiah, if he truly is the son of righteousness, then simply to touch his wings, simply to touch the tassels of his garments would be to access and receive the healing that is promised by the prophet. So this woman was actually coming, not with this kind of magical superstition, but with this deep faith that Messiah could heal her, that she could receive what could only be found in the garments of the Messiah, a promise that would indeed, this would be accessed by others as well. If you look forward to to Matthew chapter 14, it says, when the men of that place, this is Genesaret, 
When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the what? The fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Folks, this isn't superstition. This is exercised faith in the promised Messiah. So the woman's faith is actually, I think, the the centerpiece of this story. If you look at even how the story is, is structured, there's this story on the outside of this resurrected young daughter, and then in the middle, this daughter, and speaking to her in the middle of it is the words of Jesus affirming and recognizing her faith. This should remind us of what Jesus saw in the paralytic and his friends back at the beginning of chapter 9. When Jesus saw their faith in verse 2, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You remember that story, that Jesus speaks forgiveness, and then he proceeds to prove his authority to forgive sins by healing the man, by making him whole. And these stories parallel by virtue of what Jesus says to them both. And in chapter 9, verse 2, Take heart, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then to this woman, to this daughter, in verse 22, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. There's a parallel here. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. And what we unfortunately don't see in most of our English translations If you have the CSB or the Christian Standard Bible, that's a notable exception. But most of our English translations use the word, the phrase, made well or made whole. It's used in verse 21 and then twice again in verse 22. That's one word, and it's used three times in quick succession in two verses. And it's the word that is often, most often translated to be saved. Okay, it's a word that's translated to be saved. So these verses could be translated this way. If I only touch his garment, I will be saved. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was saved. Now the word in the Greek has two distinct meanings in the New Testament, and one of them certainly refers to being healed or made well. So being saved or or rescued from a disease. Being saved or rescued from illness or, or, or the proximity to death. But interestingly, this is not the word that Matthew usually uses when he's talking about physical healing. He uses this word when he's talking about salvation. He uses other words when he's talking about healing. So why does he use it here? Why does he say that your faith has saved you? Well, first, I have an opinion on this. I think Matthew has intentionally connected this woman's story with the previous healing of the paralytic. You saw that just right here, these parallel statements that Jesus speaks to them. He sees faith and responds to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the paralytic, I would argue, trusted Jesus not just to heal him, but trusted him for forgiveness. And similarly, this woman's faith embraces Jesus' messianic identity and his power not just to heal her body, but to save her entire person. Second, when you consider where this story is placed, it's sandwiched 
in the middle of a resurrection story. A story of Jesus coming and showing his power over death, over the grave. His power to bring back to life. You can see it sandwiched in the middle. And what Matthew's point, what the point he's making is is making a connection between these two stories. That when we, by faith, receive the gift of salvation, it comes wrapped in a package of resurrection. You don't get one and not the other. When you come to Jesus Christ with saving faith, you get life. You get resurrection. The two are intimately connected. Jesus' power over death is the same power by which he's able to save. And I think the big point of this story is is not that she was healed, although that was a blessing for sure. The big point is that she had saving faith. A faith that gave her access to two things. Mainly, forgiveness of her sins. That's the connection with the paralytic story. And resurrection of the dead. The the connection with the dead daughter story. Third, like the paralytic, this woman's physical healing was proof of her salvation. Remember, Jesus forgave his sins and Everybody got worked up about it. And then he said, hold on, just to, just to show that I have authority, I'm going to heal him too. So the woman's healing was proof of, of her salvation, but it was also a picture of salvation. In other words, salvation is more full-orbed than we often think it to be. In Jesus' healing work, he is making bodies whole which have been unwell. He's restoring them to the way that they should be. And this healing should give us a picture of of what, what Jesus' greater work of salvation is all about, which is a work of making whole what has been broken into pieces. A work of making straight what has been bent. Making well what has been unwell. Jesus has come to save, and his salvation that he offers is not simply saving us from something in the future, this destruction or a future judgment. Here Jesus pictures salvation kind of like healing, a restoring of us to what we were created to be, which is sons and daughters. That's gospel, folks. That's good news. And one final point on this story, because it's often tempting for us to read this story and say, wow, this woman's faith is what healed her. And Jesus is not teaching in this story that if you just believe hard enough, he will heal you of whatever physical ailment you happen to be suffering from. Or, Jesus is also not teaching, if you have a chronic ailment, your faith just isn't strong enough. You just haven't believed enough. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't turn to the woman and commend the strength of this woman's faith. What he commends is the object of her faith, himself. We saw this last week. Faith is utter dependence, utter trust, recognizing that I can't, but Jesus can. So when we come to him in faith, he's not. he doesn't have a faith meter that he's that he's measuring the the strength of our faith. He's looking for the right object of faith, and that is him. 
This is the same utter, complete, helpless dependence which gets its strength from its object, the weakness that saves, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is a gift. It's not your own doing. It's a gift. God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. As one uh, scholar, Walter Wilson, put it, Matthew 9, 18 to 26 is, quote, a story about resurrection interrupted by a story about being saved. And I believe that Matthew's point in giving us these stories as he did is to show us that in Jesus, salvation and resurrection go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. The gift of salvation is wrapped up in resurrection, and it will always be this way. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we, we partake in His fullness, and thus we, we, we partake in His death and in His resurrection. So Romans 6.5, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul again in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And to access this resurrection, to access this salvation, what does it take? It takes faith. All that Jesus asks of us is that we believe in him. So this morning we come in faith to the Lord's table to communion, which is a remembrance for those who by faith have put their trust in Jesus and received the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, who have received the gift of relationship again with the God who has created us and made us. So we come and we remember his death, his burial and resurrection that purchased those things for us through these elements of bread and through the element of juice. And this is a table, this is a meal reserved for those who by faith have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone as the object of our faith and and the one who has saved us as our Savior. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to come to this table of faith to remember what he has done for us and to Again, be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you are one who struggles with faith, that's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to wrestle with God. But if you are one who has not yet put your faith in Jesus, I would call to you today and say, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to put your faith in Messiah, to experience wholeness and life and resurrection and forgiveness. And if that's something you want to talk about, I'd love to talk to you about it. There are others who would as well. But I'd ask you now to, before we take communion, to pray with me. Our Father, we do come again to you, and we are reminded of the beauty of your Son, Jesus. My prayer this morning is that you would draw all of our eyes to him. As we look at this story and what he has done, a woman who saw in him the promised Messiah and who reached out and and grasped at the healing that was in his wings, Lord, and received it by faith.
So we pray, God, that you would strengthen the faith of those who have weak faith today. Strengthen them because we are looking, they are looking at you, Jesus. We pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged. We pray that you would heal those who are chronically ill. Lord, we, we pray that you would bring forgiveness, Lord, to those who have not yet been forgiven. Lord, would you save? Would you do your work, your gospel work this morning? Your work of death, burial, and resurrection. We look to you in this meal, Jesus, as one who has given everything for us, who's given your life on behalf of ours, and who has purchased for us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with our Father. So, Jesus, we don't want to take that for granted, but we come gratefully, thankfully, saying thank you and giving you praise for all that you've done, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.